The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, and welcome to It's Relatable on Mind Body Spirit FM, where we talk about all things relationship. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and I'm so happy you're here. Get comfortable and let's dig in. Hey, everyone, welcome back, and thank you again for listening. Today's conversation is going to maybe get a little bit dark. So just a heads up for folks. Um, I mean, maybe that was obvious from the title, which is relationship to violence. But um, while we won't be, you know, specifically talking about really gory things in detail, um, I just want folks to know that I know there's a lot going on in the world right now and it feels really heavy. And, um, while my guest and I will not be exploring themes of violence on the global stage, we're definitely going to be talking about violent tendencies and, and the ways that we harm each other and why we choose to do that. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to Joe Loya, who is someone that I know through my dear friend, Rosie, and um, I'm so excited to interview him. He is an essayist, a playwright, a podcaster, a TV writer, a film consultant, and the author of the memoir, The Man Who Outgrew His Prison Cell. It's a fascinating book, and we will include links for you all to find it in the show notes, but um, I encourage you to go check it out. Joe is currently producing several podcasts. He's writing a memoir on fatherhood and he's developing a TV show. And he is just an absolutely delightful human being. So I hope that you get comfortable and settle in and listen to our conversation. And I hope that it gets you thinking. All right, here we go. All right. Hi, Joe. I'm so excited to talk to you today. (laughs) I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course, of course. So I have, we're going to talk about probably all the things just because that's the way this sort of thing works. But um, I, the sort of the foundation, the basis of this is your book that you wrote, um, The Man Who Outgrew His Prison Cell. And um, first thing I'm going to say is I'm going to, in the show notes, link to the book so people can find it and um, read it because I think it's fascinating. And there's... Yeah, yeah, link it to joeloya.ltd. Uh, Joe okay. That way people can get it, and I can sign it for people that way. Right? Oh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's even better. All right, we'll do that. Um, yeah, so as I was reading the book, um, so many different themes came up, but the one that I feel like is particularly timely and salient right now that really stuck out to me is... Um, violence yeah and i and i love the sort of evolution that you had 
around your thoughts around violence and and the way that it showed up and I don't love the way that it showed up in your life, but I love that, you know, the way that you were so thoughtful and deliberate about it. And the first, so the first thing I want to talk to you about is, um, I'm going to read this quote from your book that really struck me because I grew up Catholic and it really resonated for me. So you wrote, it was Bible stories that first taught me that shed blood is required for personal salvation. It was Christian theology that introduced me to the notion that the kingdom arrives only after apocalypse. Yeah, you know, I was raised Protestant, so it was always, oh, the rapture right before the tribulations, and, and we're going to have all these terrible things on God's calendar is going to happen, and Antichrist is going to come. It just... I, w- I understood that the Valley of Megiddo was going to be, you know, up to a horse's neck in blood. And that was Armageddon. And, mm-hmm. you know, and of course, Jesus had to die and shed his blood. And the, the whole Passover is getting this innocent sheep, putting the family's hands on it to transfer the sins to the sheep. And then you got to slice his neck and you got to splash blood on the door jumps like that. That entire concept of blood to be spared and saved. That's all in my child. That's just, it was yeah. bloody. It was, it was Baroque. And then, of course, yeah. all the blood and violence of what I saw, my own blood on the walls, my own blood, uh, tasting my own blood when I get punched in the face and my dad would give me, you know, bloody nose. I, there's, I was raised with a very, I think, an, actually an old school understanding of, of, of violence and blood. And also, oddly, the eroticism of violence and blood. Yeah, um, you know there is, and the face. There's so as con- uh, uh, a congregation of um, of nerves right here, and this little V from your mouth underneath your mouth up to your to to the, the top of your nose, and then back down the other side of your mouth. There's yeah. so many nerves here. So when you get punched, mm-hmm. ooh, it just lights you up. Yeah, your 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 you know your face feels so much. So I'm not talking about the sexuality of, but there is a there's a fundamental uh, charge yeah. in your body that that from all those nerves getting lit up, and um, that that I don't think you know people talk about. Like there is something about why men why boys fight like that. <laughs> why we just get yeah. always wrestling and touching and grabbing and punching and. I don't know. There's something about that too. I was just raised with a lot of violence and, and, yeah. and it made sense to me. And I felt like it was, it was the order of the world because I was raised religiously. And I felt like this is the way God wanted it to be. I mean, yeah. you know, Noah comes out of the, Noah comes out of the big boat and he, and God says, okay, look at, what do you see? You see the beasts in the field dominion over there. You see the birds in the sky dominion. You got dominion over everything. So that's that's the world I felt was offered to me. Yeah. I had dominion over everything, and I just needed to figure out how to marshal the violence yeah. to fit in with all the bloodshed and violence that's required to be um, a soldier of God. Yeah, yeah, it's really wild. I um, because I think there is this sort of we we conflate violence with power, right? There's this. In, in a lot of ways. Um, and I think in, in this culture, we're taught that power is the ultimate 
goal, right? The person with the most power wins. <laughs> and so when when you've sort of normalized that, you know, the the whole idea of having dominion over something, right? Is this like I own it, I can do whatever I want with it. Um it's interesting because my, my dad, I grew up Catholic. My dad was a Marine and um you know, physical violence was definitely something that he used as a way to just have control over things. Absolutely. Um, and, and menace. And, and the menace and the, and the threat of the violence was part of the control. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, I mean, I can, <laughs> you know, I'll give you something to cry about, right? He would ball his fist up and just look at me, don't cry, because I'll give you something to cry about, right? So, like, that would stop the tears instantly. Terrible. Like, you don't Terrible. have to yeah. hit me right now, because I know that you would, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I think as a, as a kid, it's, it's hard to question that. If that's something that's just part of the sort of water you drink every day, I can't question them because you're a child, and when you're a child, you know instinctively that that person, their obligation is to protect you and take care of you and feed you because you're little, right. and whatever. Right. And, and, and in fact, all you know is they've been feeding you. You show up to the table, there's food, and so if you think you're going to get rid of that person. If that person's going to leave, then the threat of your it's it's existential. It's like, well, then how am I yeah. gonna eat? Where am I gonna how where am I gonna sleep? All that stuff comes yeah. up. And so you you have to you have to mollify them, right? You have to you have to, and especially, you know, this is what learned early about men, you have to coddle their egos so yeah. that they feel safe themselves, so that they don't have to feel insecure, and that way they don't have to you know, ignite their rage and do all these threats and all this other crazy stuff to you. So as a child, you have to, that's all you have these yeah. people to believe and trust in. And um, to, to not trust they're going to take care of you is exactly where all the mental illnesses and the, the, um, the compartmentalization of trauma, trauma, uh, traumatic kids comes in yeah. where they're like, well, I can't, I, if I imagine that these people are going to abandon me or even with their violence might kill me, you just step out of yourself and you just like, yeah. oops, and you're just like, ah, da, 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 and you just like live somewhere else because you can't imagine it. And I think yeah. that that's why when I grew up, it was easy for me to compartmentalize because I learned very early, like, okay, I'm, 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 everything's all right. I'm just going to turn this way. Everything's yeah. going to be good. You know? So um, I just feel like we could do nothing we could do nothing else, you know? And then, but, but because I was also being trained in this ethos, my dad yeah. never understood that if you train me in the ethos of payback and maleness, hyper maleness needs to show other men, they have to respect you. You can't just let somebody beat you up. You got to go and fight them afterwards or attack yeah. them back. Like he didn't understand. <laughs> he was, he was creating in me his demise. Yeah. Like there came a time where he was beating me so badly. I was like, okay, well, I have to go and now try and kill him. Just step right. in the neck and try to kill him. Because I was like, this is my this is my legacy as a man. I have to now buy mm -hmm. into this. And um, and you know, there's also plenty of stories like that. It was basically like when Abraham put Isaac on the on the altar and he was ready to like stab him because mm -hmm. God told me I had to kill him. It was a test. Yeah. Well, I was like, I was like, Isaac, I was like, wait, what are we doing here? Oh, wait. So let me grab the knife and like, let me stab you, Abraham. 
Yeah. <laughs> I just flipped the script. But that was yeah. already in my head. The idea that a dad trying to, you know, kill his son with a knife. I was like, well, okay, I'll just flip that, that Bible yeah. script. And so, oh, that was in my imagination. It's crazy. It's crazy that that's the um, hyper male world that I was exposed to. Now, something yeah. interesting on this real quick, just a side note. You know, it's not like people grew up and, and kind of invented the idea of dominion. It's not like they kind of invented the idea of protect your stuff with violence. Um, I don't think that that's, and people feel like that's a very human thing. And I feel like it's it's not a, a human invention or a human, you know, politic. I feel like early on, Man spent a lot of time, humankind spent a lot of time um, out in the wild yeah. and observing the animal kingdom. Yeah. And if you spend any time looking at what the animal kingdom does, one of the major things in the animal kingdom is kleptoparasitism, which is um, uh, a cheetah takes down a gazelle. Right. And it's ready, ready to eat. It's just taking it down. And then a bunch of hyenas come and, and yeah. scare the cheat up a tree and then they take his food. They just right. steal the food. Yeah. And the cheetah's like, oh, yeah. there's more numbers of you than me. So like early humans saw that all day long. And right. that's just that's just a principle of existence that yeah. the powerful will take because it's it's if you're hungry and you're yeah. desperate. There is no morality in stealing someone else's food to eat in that case. It's like the cheetah's not being cheated and the hyena are not stealing. That's that's what things humans eventually would impose on that. Right. Because I don't look at that as that. I don't look right. at the, the and we the fact that we even call it kleptoparasitism, like they're stealing the food. That's just right. animal kingdom being animal. Everything has to eat. Right. Everyone has to bring food home to their little children too, you know, like the cheetah yeah. and the hyenas. So yeah. That these ideas of that that make it into the text once once humans start using language and start writing, they're not like, oh, let's devise ways in which we can, you know, hurt other humans. They're just looking at the world and nature and and themselves yeah. in the animal kingdom. And they eventually got to a point where they became good with their brains got bigger, they got good with tools, and they started stealing all the other animals' food. And once they realized they were at the top of the food chain, us. Yeah. They started killing animals all day long to eat. Right. right. So, yeah. Dominion, I mean, I, dominion yeah, and murder and killing and bloodshed. And all, that's early on part of the whole part of being alive on the planet. You know? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it's interesting. I think it actually ties back to what you were talking about, you know, within within your own family and, and my family, too. Right. It's it's like as a little kid. We tolerate the violence because it's a survival thing like we know we need like i have to have a tribe to belong to and this is the tribe exactly. i was born into and so exactly. yeah, yeah. like you know but then as we hit those sort of adolescent years and it's our job to individuate and go find our own tribe and also in your case you know it was truly survival to stab your father, right? Because if he doesn't kill me, I'm, an, you know, I, I got to kill, kill him. him. Kill him. Kill yeah. Me, yeah so it, it's there. And I think that that's, um, 
it's the same thing with the animal kingdom, right? It's like for, you know, it's just a survival thing, right? This is what we need. The thing kill, that I, yeah. yeah, the thing that I think is interesting is that what has shifted a lot for for us as human beings is we don't use those tools that we have simply to survive, right? We use them to try to control things. And that's we we convince ourselves that's survival. But it's not right. Like your father beating the crap out of you was not survival, right? That was a different kind of violence. That wasn't like I got to eat. That was I have this rage or this trauma inside me and I don't know what to do with it. And so I'm just going to blow it out on my kid because that's the weakest person in the room and you're, you know, right there. So I'm going to grab you, (laughs) pull you over here. It right. It's different than and. But when we're in that, like physiologically, it's the same, right? We have that same adrenaline rush. We have that same, you know, need to lash out physically. But it it's not like the cheetah taking down the gazelle. This is a it's a yeah, yeah. twisted thing, <laughs> kind of, you, you know. But you, yes. But I've also come to understand. Obviously, yes. But I've also come to understand that. And when when people would would say, um, you could have ran out of the house because my dad left, and when he left, I went and got a steak knife mm-hmm. and put it under the pillow and waited for him to come back. Yeah, he was gone for twenty minutes or so, thirty minutes. They said, if you were really afraid, why don't you just run away? And if you were afraid, oh, why don't you run away and then go report to the, call the police? If you were afraid, why don't you run to your aunt's house and? where I eventually ran out there, I stabbed him. Like, there were things I could have done. And over the years, I have examined that. Like, yeah, this is true. Why didn't I do that? And I, and, I, and I finally figured it out. It's like, well, what they didn't understand was what I felt was going to die that day was not just oh, maybe me physically dying, because I didn't actually feel I was going to die that day. I felt like eventually I was going to die. Yeah, I was just getting badly that day but i knew that it had been escalating yeah and so i feared that eventually it was going to happen but that day i didn't feel like it but what i did feel was and this is psychologically what makes us different than the cheetah and the hyena was uh when six months before he had tortured my brother he had or six weeks before he had tortured mm-hmm. my brother he had dunked his head in this in the soapy dishwater and i was mm-hmm. left there helpless yeah, I I was there with my the dish towel because we were at washing dishes, and I just watched my brother when he would bring my brother's head, and my brother would all the water out of his nose and his mouth, and he would look at me like help, and I was so paralyzed with fear. Yeah, that I wanted that night in bed, I wanted to kill myself. I never, I had never confronted my cowardice and my limits so strongly, mm. and so all I knew was I could not. Uh, that part was killing me. Yeah. And I felt if I did not do something, then I would go extinct. And I don't necessarily mean, think I meant only or understood only die. Right. I thought who I thought I was with volition and agency and even ability to commit violence. I already had been a fighter and stuff in school. And my understanding of the world and my understanding of my place, and I had a giant sense of myself. And what my dad had done to me at that sink was introduced to me 
a, a, a version of myself that would have killed the sense of self I had, the idea mm-hmm. of myself. Yeah. So when I acted out, the reason I didn't go to the ads or the police is they could not stop that feeling in my psyche of extinction. And so right. killing my dad, a lot of the motivation was you are not going to make me extinct. You're not going to squash my sense of self. I'm a fucking yeah. giant. You don't see it. Yeah. I know I am. And just because I was at that sink and I was a coward momentarily, I am not a coward. Yeah. And I am now going to show who I am. I'm now going to survive with a new narrative. I'm going to assert myself and gain that mantle that I think I have coming yeah. where I need to stand in that in that personage. And so though I wasn't afraid and later on, even I would act violently because I was like, I'm not going to go extinct. Joe Loy exists. Yeah. Joe Loy is going to exert himself and Joe yeah. Loy is going to be here. Somebody else's sense of self is going to go extinct today. Not mine. Mm-hmm. And I'm going yeah. to, I'm going to introduce them to their limits, to yeah. their cowardice, just like I felt my dad had done me. So yes, yeah. it's not, we're not doing violence anymore because we think, it's survival like that, but there is a sense of, of, uh, of fear of the self extinction, which yeah. is not incidental. It drives a lot of, yeah. uh, a lot of our behaviors, and certainly in mine, it it underwrote a lot of my violence. Certainly, the stabbing of my father. Mm. Yeah, does that make sense? How absolutely, it's, absolutely. It's not I love- the cheetah being attacked by hyenas. But it felt like the che- like a bunch of hyenas were ready to eat me if I didn't sure. jump up that tree. Yeah, so I had to like take I had to take on my my dad who was my my yeah. mind was a pack of hyenas. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. I appreciate you you articulating it that way because it's it's true. I think um, it's so funny because the my I, as you were saying that my eyes lit on this other quote that I wrote out from the book that I feel like it talks about that too, where you said. Spontaneous violence was the world I had been born into, and I saw only one way out of that violent world. I had to be more violent than the force of the violence that was oppressing me. Yeah. Right? So it's like the only way to make this stop. And it's interesting because this kind of brings up, and and you touched on this a little bit before, but it brings up something for me that that I think would be cool to explore is the relationship between the way we're socialized for our gender and violence, because I experienced a lot of violence as a young kid from both of my parents. Um, My dad's was rage. It was, he had done tours in Vietnam and had horrible PTSD. And um, his was, I mean, there definitely was that sort of threatening, controlling kind of thing, but but when he would lose it, it was just rage. And my mom- conflated it with love like she would just be beating the hell out of me with a wooden spoon and saying this hurts me more than it hurts you i'm doing this for your own good and so in my child mind it was like how (laughs) she loves me and how like how do you figure that like there's such cognitive dissonance there in, all day long right i don't it's know so, what you're saying right now to be honest <laughs> it's so different right it's like how do i conflate love with this mm, like wow. horrible physical pain that you're causing me right um and i will say for me instead of 
I don't know if it's a socialization thing. I don't know, you know, what, but I don't know if it's a total gender thing. I don't have any idea, but I'm, I'm that person who, because of the violence that I experienced, I can't witness other violence. Like I cannot watch a movie that where people are hurting each other. I don't like those nature shows where there's like, like, you know, <laughs> a gazelle being taken down. Like I, I get physically ill when I yeah. see that stuff. So instead of me sort of blowing that out or enacting that violence on other people, my response was a very, very different thing. And I don't know, yeah. you know, I just think it's interesting to think about how we have those different responses. And I wonder how much of that is socialized because of our gender or culture or things like that. Yeah. I mean, when, when I was, when I was, uh, me and Mike, I forgot talking about having a kid. All I kept saying was, man, I don't want a boy. Mm. And she was like, why don't you want a boy? I said, man, to raise a boy in this world, the, 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 the way boys are conditioned to be in this world, the pressures on the boys' poise are so intense, peer pressure, because the socialization of boys, even now, is still, is still so hard because it is about dominion. It is about the way boys... Um, have intimacies with each other a lot of it is like insulting and tearing down and that actually is how guys get close to each other you know i've been in hyper hyper male environments and and what was fascinating when i got out i had a friend who was he was a straight-up nerd he had played he had played um um he had played um cello with yo-yo ma Mm. brilliant and he was also a memoirist his his memoir was 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 um submitted was Pulitzer Prize uh, wow. uh, nominee like really brilliant and also amazing martial artist. So what he was saying was when I would talk about the hypermaleness of prison, he would say, you know, even though we I was in a nerd culture, he said we acted the same. We were all a bunch of nerds. All of us would have been destroyed by any other criminals you knew. But in that mm-hmm. environment, it was all insulting. It was all competition. It was all putting each other down. He said, yeah. and then he went to martial arts. Same thing. It was everyone was like, it's just, it was just, it was just maleness. Even it didn't matter if it was nerdy. It didn't matter if it was soldiers. Mm-hmm. And all the soldiers of friends I have who were in the military, where it's like it was like being in prison. It was that super hyper male because we were super violent and yeah. you know, prone to really for danger. But I just feel like I just feel like to 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 be a man in the world in, in any military, even literary world, right? It's like there's all these. You know, it's, it's funny the literary battles that go on, but it's all wit and it's all it's all putting people down. It's just weird how yeah. how maleness is um is 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 the condition how how it's everywhere. Boys in this country are, are raised a certain way. I mean, not just this country. I you know I've been living in Wales for a while, and I meet guys there and. Yeah, and their buddies and stuff, and they buddy up and talk to each yeah. other the same way. You know, yeah, that's just, that's just a thing. So, yeah, I feel like guys who are going to, and, and not everyone is conditioned habituated to violence, but we are habituated to maleness, and maleness yeah. has a component of allowing for that dominion hierarchy. Somebody has to go down for me to go up. It's like yeah, it's like the dog park when you, if you've ever been at a dog park. 
you know, yeah. the gate opens and then a dog comes in, everyone rushes over to sniff. And what they're really sniffing is like, do I go up in the hierarchy or do I go down? Because there's yeah. a new dog here and I'm, there's a place for everybody and yeah. for every dog in that power assignments, right? So yeah. I feel that's the way it is with us. And some at the very top, it becomes very violent. And then everyone's competing for who's going to, who's going to, be more violent and aggressive. And yeah. what, frankly, what that is, is also, it's a greater heightened sense of insecurity among men. The men at the top are exceedingly fragile-minded and psychically. And mm-hmm. part of it is like me, what I said about that extinction thing, there's a mm-hmm. component of the self feeling under serious duress, distress, and attack, even yeah. though somebody just looked at you and didn't smile at you when you said hello, right? So. Yeah. Um, I feel like, I feel like it's, it's more dangerous up there. I know that too, because I was exceedingly insecure myself. So that's why I can yeah. thrive at that level. And then he, when it came to a point, I was like, oh man, when I'm looking around and seeing, trying to see who, who, who's dangerous to me, what I really found I was doing was measuring other men's insecurities. <laughs> mm. I wasn't afraid. Like, oh, he's really good with a knife or, you know, this guy has his homeboys. Or, I was like, who could get offended most easily? Because then they're going to, that offense is going to accrue dark powers in the shadows of their imagination. And they're going to figure right. out, I got to get this guy because he's going to come and get me. And I yeah. knew that it was all, it was all paranoia and all fear and insecurity that governed yeah. that kind of, where you see on the outside, oh, that's a tough guy. He's stabbing that guy. I look at it otherwise, like he's the weakest guy is the most dangerous to me. And who is he? And where is he? And, how might yeah. I not make, how might I ensure that I don't step on that fragile ego? Yeah, well, and that's, it's really fascinating to me that, um, because I think women have some of that. I mean, we definitely do, you know, you there's human. this little jockey for position kind of thing. Um, but it does, I think for all of us, there's an element of language and the way that we use language that is either, pacifies people or can incite people right and so there is that like if you're if you're clever like my mom was the queen of the backhanded compliment she could say something that if you wrote those words down on a piece of of paper it would look like she was saying something really nice but the way she said it and her tone of voice was just like damn woman that hurt you know (laughs) yeah yeah, so it's really wit. the rapier's wit. Yeah. yeah, she was the queen of that, and so it's interesting. I'm I'm curious how because you are a linguist, right? You are a person who is fascinated with language. I could tell just Absolutely. you know from your book and the you know all of that, and so I think um, that I'm curious how that played out for you, not only in just in life before prison, but also when you were in prison, because I can imagine being in that sort of crucible space, right, where all of these men are packed in together, like you have to choose your words carefully, or you can be really clever if you want to piss somebody off, like, (laughs) you know, so what was that like for you to the sort of the connection between language and violence when you were incarcerated? Well, this is a really good question. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I loved ideas. My dad habituated me to ideas, I thought. Mm-hmm. And so I read philosophy. I was reading philosophy and theology early in my mid-teens. 
so I, I, I loved ideas. I loved making correlations between thoughts and ideas. And mm-hmm. so my brain was wired for that and trained for that. Uh, and so when I stabbed my father and I wanted to go violent, I loved books, I loved reading, and I loved ideas. But I thought that had actually made me a target because I was really nerdy and geeky, geeked out on the Bible and theology and stuff mm-hmm. and uh, philosophy. And I felt like those are in feet, a feat endeavors, effete endeavors. Yeah, yes. And I now want to live in my body. So I felt like, okay, I have good language and I have confidence. I'm, I'm one of those Mexicans who's not at war with the language. I don't... I don't speak really well, good Spanish, and I um, I don't speak very good Spanish, and um, I wasn't raised with a lot of Spanish in the home, but because my, my dad specifically wanted us to to master English, yeah. So I have all this confidence. So I go into the prisons, and uneducated Mexicans all around me. Mm-hmm. So already my language separated me because I didn't have an accent. Mm. You know, I didn't talk like this. Why would I? You couldn't tell for, for reals that I maybe was from East LA. And I didn't talk like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, now, I did I did dumb myself down a little bit by using slang. What's up? All right. Home boy, well, yeah, I would do that sure. over time. But that's not the way I entered prison. And yeah. um, so, but what I hear the interesting thing about having the language that I had was my language benefited me because I knew how to tell stories. I've been a storyteller since I was a little son of a preacher. And I was been telling Bible stories since I was seven with a little flannel graph board. So all a bunch of little second graders <laughs> around me. So I was, a, I, w- I was a storyteller, right? I knew how to construct story, whatever. So yeah. what was good for me, I had one story that the men in prison needed to hear. I needed to convey to them that they could trust me, even though I was a little geeked out, little nerdy, skinny ass guy with yeah. my big dopey glasses and no criminal pedigree or gang pedigree. And I needed them to know that they needed to fear me or at least reassess and reevaluate the impressions they had of me. Mm-hmm. So I knew how to tell the story of stabbing my dad really well. Mm-hmm. Being articulate and being able to tell stories, I knew that if I told the story right, they would glean a lot of things like, oh, this guy has big heart because he took on, you know, Goliath, yeah, a guy bigger than him. And they mm-hmm. all understood that they'd all been beat by their dads and their stepfathers, and yeah. none of them tried to kill him. So immediately, the power of that was like, you might have been stabbing all these 13-year-olds when you were 13-year-olds and 16-year-olds when you were 16. And I was 16 and I stabbed a 32-year-old man and tried to kill him. I'm different than you. That was part of what I needed to communicate. I needed to communicate that I am really good at making other people see their own blood. So if you're going to come at me, I'm going to be happy to show you your own blood. Like there's all these ways in which I would tell the story and even communicate that. Like that's where I learned um, that when I saw the blood, I knew from then on, every time someone came at me, I was going to show their own blood. Now that construction of that, yeah, it makes the story pop. But uh, more importantly, I was letting them know. So if you ever have an idea to come at me, I'm going right. to show you a lot of. So my my ability to tell story and my my confidence with language to communicate what I wanted to communicate on different levels, yeah. that helped me. 
because I yeah. could communicate all the violent stories I wanted to and all the lessons they wanted them to derive from, mm. from those bloody episodes. And so that benefited me. Yeah. And then I am also a teacher. So I could, I could slow down my ideas mm-hmm. and root them. And because I'd re- read, I, I write, I read low and I read high. I read a lot of academic books and com- biblical commentaries and a lot of philosophy, but then I also read a lot of, you know, crime fiction and that stuff. And, and I was yeah. obviously now in the criminal milieu. So I would get a high idea. I want to convey something about loyalty or I want to convey something about power or whatever. Yeah. And I would bring it down to the lowest common denominator of language between me and another, my cellmate, say, so that they could understand something. But it wasn't all highfalutin language. It was. Right. Where where we lived on the prison tier, so yeah, that was another advantage of the access to language I had in the storytelling. So language benefited me, yeah. Um, but I have also had to be careful when I was with real killers. I had to be quiet mm-hmm. because language could have inflamed them, and they could have found that as uh, um, a challenge to them. Yeah, I had good language, so I just needed to be respectful, quiet. If they ask a question, give them the fastest, quick, you know, quickest, succinct answer as possible, and try not to sound educated. I just right. had to sound smart and quick. Yeah. Um, so you know, it just it was one of those things. You even out here, you have to be careful. You deploy language. You don't want to bully people or intimidate people. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you are not other than, you know, stabbing your dad when you committed other crimes, violence wasn't part of your thing. Well, I, mean, I robbed 30 banks. I'm pretty sure. But I mean, <laughs> you, but you didn't like harm people, right? Yeah, you yeah. didn't go in I mean, with this like swagger of like screaming, yelling, you know, okay, waving oh, yeah. your sticking a gun in someone's face. Like it doesn't seem like you used violence as a tactic to rob banks. Okay. <laughs> okay, so let's be careful. I didn't I didn't use I never physically harmed anybody. That's what we can say. Yeah. Uh but I would tell you that inherently when you go to somebody and you and you menace them to give you something they're not supposed to give you, that's a violent exchange. Oh, 100%. I walk in there there with so much rage and Mm. so much power that when I say, give me that fucking money or blow your fucking head off, it it ripples through them and devastates. It does what I want it to do, which is I need them to feel cut in half and they become automatons and they just do what I want them to do right now. Now, the reason I say it's violent is because when I leave, that is going to damage them. And yes. it's going to land in their family. They're going to go home at night. Yeah. And everyone in their family is going to feel my yeah. the repercussions of my contact with them, which yeah. was violence. Which yes. means they're going to be scared. I'm In my podcast, I interviewed a woman who I, who I robbed. And she said, you know, she was at college. And every time she would come out to her car late at night from school, from class, she was scared. Right. Because of my exchange with her, right? So my my, yeah. my encounter with her. And yeah. so I I was not physically violent. Like I always tell people, just because I can tell you I never physically assaulted a girlfriend. I'm not that's not my thing. I don't I've never 
physically put my hand. I'm not, I was never a batterer. Right. But I was fucking so insecure. I've intimidated and threatened, you know, my, my menace them just by my outbursts where I would go and crash it or smash a TV or scream yeah. and yell. Like that. I emotionally terrorize them. And you know what? Having grown up with both violence and, and, and emotional abuse, that emotional abuse doesn't get a pass just because I didn't slap her or something like that, right? So yeah. it's yeah. it's it's hard for me to be like, I wasn't violent. I was just, you know, I was just robbing the institution. I feel like I was extremely violent. In fact, I was so clinical with my violence that I didn't have to yeah. pull out a gun, hit anyone on the head. Right. I knew how to just cut it quick. More importantly, the reason I wanted to rob some of those days was because something had set me off the day before. I felt mm. helpless. And the only way I could recover a sense of self was to go and scare people out of their lives so I could suck that fear and then feel like I'm in control again. Mm. And then also get paid for it, get money for it. So yeah. it was, it was, it was like, uh, I was, uh, I was a force of nature, you know, yeah. like I, I would go through a town like a hurricane <laughs> <laughs> and there would just be all these falling buildings after me. Same thing with, like, if I encountered you as a human, you know, I broke you down. And, mm -hmm. and it didn't matter whether it was with a fist or if it was with words. It was devastating. And yeah. so I'm very careful not to give myself a pass on understanding that the violence that I did was pretty serious. Even though I never, like you said, nobody ever saw a gun. I never laid my hands on anyone. Yeah. I never, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, it was terrible. I mean, yeah. look at the nightmares I had when I got out of prison. Well, I had some of prison, but most of my nightmares were faces of people I had robbed mm. and the fear. Yeah. And so for a long time, when my conscience woke up, that was, I understood that the encounters I had at those, at those teller stations were pretty, yeah. pretty terrible. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I, it's true. It's, um, we do have, like, I could even just have that visceral reaction, right, to what you were talking about. Because I've been in that place before where someone yeah. just scared the shit out of me. You know, it's like you can uh, walk down the same stretch of sidewalk for 10 years in your neighborhood and feel perfectly fine. And the one night you get mugged, even if you didn't get hurt, but someone snuck up on you and they snatched your purse and they ran off. Like, every time you walk down that same stretch of sidewalk after that, you your heart starts to race, right? It's there you that, go. Exactly. You know? Um, so it definitely does make an impression and, and it is, it's, I think it's one of those things that we need to understand the effect that we have on other people. And, you know, the, as soon as we start trying to control someone else's behavior, then we're losing yeah. an opportunity to sort of connect with our own humanity and theirs. Absolutely. Yeah. So you know, when did that all podcast? Real quick, I want to share, yeah. share a quick story. Then when the woman came on the podcast to explain what happened to her, and it was played back to me, that devastated me, man. I was I was crying in the studio, mm -hmm. and I don't mean crying. I I I felt so terrible for her, and I felt so terrible for ourselves that we you know that we went through that. And I, and I was sad that I had been the man in so much pain. <clears throat> and that I I felt like that was the way I needed to treat people. And in that moment, I just broke down there and I sobbed. You know, one of those cries you knew from your stomach. Yeah. I, I felt like a little little boy crying out to you. I was, and all I could say to myself while I was crying, because 
Ben, you know, was nice. Ben left the studio and walked out. Let me just sit in my chair and face the wall in shame. But all I kept saying was, I didn't, I didn't ask for any of the things that happened to me as a kid that shaped me, you know? Yeah. I didn't ask for any of it. I didn't ask for the death of my mother. I didn't ask to be sexually assaulted. I didn't ask to be brutalized by my father. That yeah. all shaped me, you know? And I felt bad for her and I felt bad for myself because that felt like I was fine back then doing what I did. I'm not fine with it now, but I was then. And hearing yeah. her say it was like, wow, you know, that yeah, was terrible. Yeah. I mean, it was important. I was glad I heard it. But yeah, it was rough. Yeah. I'm glad she came on, though. I was really, you know, she forgave me. You know, she had compassion. She was a good Catholic. It, it takes courage, right, to to do something like that for on both of your parts, right? That's a lot of courage for you to invite her on there to really hear mm-hmm. what she has to say. And then for her to have the courage to say it to you is, it's beautiful. And she I... She said it to me, but she did. They recorded her talk, you know, interview and. And so she shared it. So I didn't, I didn't actually hear her tell me. She was, mm. it was a recording of an interview that she had done. So mm. um, Got it. yeah, I wonder how that would have been. I've never been confronted by somebody who I mm. But you have confronted your father and the two of you have built a relationship, right? There's yeah, forgiveness yeah, yeah. and compassion there. And so when did that start to change for you? That sort of, Understanding that, you know, violence was sort of the way that we all move through the world and this is what we need to beginning to assess the damage and choosing, actively choosing a different way of living. When did that start to shift for you, do you think? Well, in solitary confinement, I started to change my life thinking I wanted I wanted out of the crime game and I knew that I wanted to um, I had this bad hallucinations, hallucination and solitary confinement. It broke me. Mm-hmm. It's in the book. I, do, I, go, mm-hmm. I, I talked about it a lot. Yeah. But essentially what happened was I decided, okay, I'm going to quit the crime game. I want to go back to, I want to, I want to be, I want to get out and never come back to prison. Fuck this prison. It's ugly. It's terrible. And I was like, yeah. I was finally convinced that I didn't belong there. So um, I did not come to the point where I thought a lot of other guys didn't belong there, but I knew I didn't belong there. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I knew then that I needed to do work because if if at that point they let me out, I had no tools. I was just come back, come back. No matter how much I wanted to change, I had not figured out how to change. And every time I had tried to change as a Christian, I'd failed. I was, I was here. I wasn't solitary confinement. So I yeah. knew that I needed to do something. Um. I needed to give myself some time when I got angry, at least 10 seconds to, to, to think about not doing what I wanted to do, which is act out. That was yeah. always getting me in trouble. Yeah. Now, the hallucination broke me down, really humbled me. So I was primed and um, I started thinking of, you know, all the things I had done and what I, I should do different. I started, you know, reading about stuff and, um, I remember having a conversation with my father. Well, I worked a lot of myself too, trying to have compassion for myself. And um, I had a, 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 a Buddhist tract had made its way into my cell. So I was reading some of the stuff that's giving me new language to understand mm-hmm. suffering and, you know, yeah. and being more humble about things. I was leaning into the humility that comes with con- uh, contemplative life and examining yourself and 
not being yeah. too hard on yourself. Um, but then I talked to my dad once and I reviewed all these things that he had done to me and I realized, oh, those are all things I do. So mm -hmm. I kind of understand my father in as much as I was becoming to understand my own insecurities that had driven and underwrote my violence. Yeah. And, but there was this one incident <laughs> that I couldn't figure out why he did what he did because being an insecure person myself, I, there was, a, there was something missing in that. It was just, it was, it was madness to me. And, and I didn't have that component of, uh, to understand it. I needed to ask him like, listen, everything you've done, I can imagine doing it as, as, as a man who knows how, why, why, why I get charged with violence and want to lash out and do things. But this yeah. one time I had a concussion dad and I mm. came home and you beat me because you kept hitting me in the head yeah. because you were upset. You thought I was lying. Like, what was that about? Like, yeah. my kid comes to me and they're injured. I'm not going to be paranoid that they're lying to me. What, what was that? And then he says, he said, well, I want to apologize for that because he says, you know, if, if, if a child of mine came to me now, I would take him to the hospital knowing what I know about hand injuries, she said. But when your mom was dying, you know, my mother died when she was 26 years old. Yeah. They had been married. They'd been married for 10 years. Yeah. They, they met when they were 12. They got married when they were 16. I was born soon after. And uh, love of his life. It was yeah. a terrible death. Two and a half years she was dying. Yeah. And they gave her, she had kidney diseases. And when they were finally able to be able to give her a kidney, unfortunately, it was so far along, her body would have rejected it. So they just mm -hmm. started giving her a bunch of experimental drugs to see, like, maybe something will work. Well, see her on the way out. Yeah. So she would go crazy. Like, she would just think she was Elizabeth Taylor and stuff like that. Yeah. But also, there was these incidents where she would be driving, my dad would be driving her to the hospital, we'd be in the back seat, and then she would look at him and she would forget she would lose, like she didn't know who he was. She thought she was being kidnapped. Oh. She would try to jump out of the car, moving car, and he would have to navigate the car, grabbing her by the back of the thing, holding her in. She was trying to jump out of the car, thinking she was being kidnapped. Uh, she just didn't recognize who he was. Yeah. And then it happened in the house. Sometimes she would wake up and not know who he was and try to run out of the house. And he would try to hold her and say, Bessie, Bessie. And I remember yeah. this conversation. He would say, it's me, it's me, it's me, Joey, Joey. Um, so he was telling me all this stuff. And he said, listen, when she was dying. I would do all these things for her. I would do, I would, I, it didn't matter what I had to do. I wanted her to know I loved her. And so I could do all these things. I suffered. He says, you know, I had to work. I had to take her to the hospital. I had to worry about you guys. I had yeah. bills and I couldn't pay. He says it was so stressful, but I knew when I put my head to bed and put a head on the pillow at night that your mother knew I loved her. Mm -hmm. And I was doing all this to mm -hmm. prove to your mother how much I loved her. So when she could not recognize me, yeah, my one validation for living was taken from me. Wow. And it was too much for me to bear. And when you showed up, it triggered all these things in me from then. And I didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. PTSD around your mother's death. And yeah. all I knew how to do was a punch. And then it was like, oh, man. For one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It makes me sad even now to think about that, but of course. It's it was yeah. on the phone. What I what I understood was that our rage was underwritten by the same trauma, the death of my mother. Yeah. And in that moment, I was like, oh man, I get you, Dad. 
And we, you're me. If I'm not trying to have compassion for me, I got to have compassion for you. Yeah. And that's when it stopped being, oh, my dad's a monster who did all these shitty things to me and I'm so mad at him. It became, oh man, my dad's like me. We suffer the same, the same core grief that underwrote yeah. our rage. And so, um, He's not a monster. He's he's a broken man, a sad man, a grieving man who yeah. did monstrous things, not unlike me. Yep. I was that exact I was looking at myself that way. So I was yeah. able right then to give him something that reframed him in my mind and no longer was he this other right. monster, evil energy, or something that right. I related to him so strongly precisely because it was the same trauma, the death of my mother. Yeah. And so it was a beautiful moment. It was, it was a very, it, it, it's reverberated even today. We have a great relationship. We laugh and play. And I was there in LA just this week and we had a moment that was super stark actually, where we were talking and I finally said to him for the first time, dad, I got to tell you something and you need to listen to me father to father. Mm. Like I wasn't talking to him as a son anymore. Yeah. We were talking about we were talking about my brother and he was talking he was framing it in a way that I understood but now that I have a daughter and when she does certain things I told him I can't, I don't have the luxury of of thinking the way you do dad that's yeah. you need to stop the way you're thinking what you need to do is that's your child yeah. and you need to do this thing and Father to father is yeah. powerful. I never praised anything like that with him. And he listened. Yeah. You know, because I am a dad and he's a dad. And we love each other. And we get to talk about things all the time. And we get to look back on things. And I get to now spend a lot of time telling him, hey, dad, you know how good you, you what you, you did me a solid? This is happening in my life. And it's because you did it. It came to me. And, yeah. and now I'm able to say, dad, you know how you did that thing to me? I rippled through me and a Matilde. And now she does it. And yeah. it's great. I get like awesome. the too. You have done good things to me, Dad. Many yeah. good things, way more than bad things. And they're the blessings of my life because I am your son, because yeah. I am like you. Um, you modeled wonderful things to me. It's not just you were terrible because sometimes you got violent. I don't frame yeah. it that way. And I love at the end of his life yeah. that when I talk about him now, it's not about the things he did wrong. It's always yeah. about look at the things you succeeded in, Dad. Yeah, I love that. And it there's that's so resonant for me because, you know, like I said, my dad was full of rage and um and we had a pretty tenuous relationship for many, many years. And then when I got pregnant sense. with my daughter, with my oldest daughter, it, I had this moment of like, this is a crossroads and I either am gonna have an actual real relationship with my dad or I'm not, but I'm not going to do this little pussyfooting around thing anymore. And, yeah, yeah. and so I went to him and I said, look, here's the deal. You don't have any power over me anymore. Cause I'm a 29 year old woman with like living in a different state and living my own life. But I want us to be real and we're going to have to figure out a way to do that. And, um, it turns out neither one of us knew at the time that he only was going to live for another eight years, but, we the the last eight years of his life were amazing. We had this, we had so much fun together. He was the greatest grandfather. He and I had big, deep conversations, you know, and I it was very similar. Like he 
the things that he saw and did in Vietnam were things that he could not reconcile, right? They were things that caused him so much pain. And my mom said, you know, she married him before he went to Vietnam. And she said he came back completely different person. I do not know the person that came back, right? Of course, of course. But he ended up dying in my arms. Like, you know, I took care of him. I mean, it was it was beautiful. And to be able to to see like, yeah. And I can't say like, sure, I wish that I hadn't experienced some of this stuff that I experienced as a kid that was painful and horrible and terrifying. And to see him as a whole three-dimensional full human being who did those things, not, he wasn't doing those things to hurt me. He was doing those things because he was hurting. And it, and I know what that feels like to be hurting, right? Just because I may or may not have made different decisions in that, in that instance, it doesn't matter. Right. It's, and so where we can get to that place where we can see people as full whole human beings who are going to fuck up sometimes. And that's just part of being human. It's kind of magical. Yeah, I, you know, and the older I get, and one of the reasons I love Rosie so much is because Rosie's like, hey, you know, all mistakes are welcome here. Like, you know, yep. like be as yep. human as you want to be. You're not going to get banished. You're not going to get judged. You're not like yep. that is one of the most powerful messages. That's as powerful as the Buddha and Jesus Christ, as far as I'm concerned. That message of, listen, be messy, be you, do you, and yeah. the love is not going to leave you. You're going to be yeah. accepted. And, yep. um, I love I love that. I mean, that was a big draw, a big attraction to me. The, the Rosie yeah. at, at such a young age figured something out that took me a long time. But I also say, leaning into what you were saying, you said it had nothing to do with you, what your dad did. I remember when I came up with the concept, somebody said, when did you forgive your father? I said, I never forgave my father. And they said, what? And I said, no, I never forgave my father because to me, forgiveness would be me it was a weird even though it's it's promoted as a higher theme i always felt one of the reasons i could never forgive and i have a lot of friends who can't forgive they try and try and try at the center of forgiveness to me for me Mm -hmm. and i figured this out of prison when i and when i gave my dad compassion rather than forgiveness the distinction was i had been trying to forgive my father and to me forgiveness was you have done something wrong to me. I've been wrong. And so now there's this, mm-hmm. there's this imbalance in the universe. And what I'm going to do with my magnanimous spirit, I, remember yeah. the I is the beginning of forgiveness. Yeah. I am going to forgive you. I'm going to bestow on you my yeah. magnanimity. And now the universe will be healed and righted and balanced because of this imbalance when you did the wrong thing. And it just stunk of yeah. ego to me. And I was like, why is this a higher theme? No wonder so many people fail at it because the ego is so delighted that it did yeah. this and the I is at the center of it. And yep. no wonder I can never forgive my father because it was I always gave mm. some contact surface space for ego to stay right there in that thing. I mm. wanted to banish ego from forgiving. I wanted it to yeah. be a higher thing that, that it didn't have so much ego in it. So yeah. the thing that compassion offered me for my father to offer my father was I looked at my dad as somebody who had been brutalized as a child. Yeah. It had been modeled to him and yeah. he did what was modeled to him. Yep. It had nothing to do. So that meant 
that if I look at my father and I give him understanding, he, I don't, he, what he did was he did, he, he did some things to me that I refused to take personally because yeah. they didn't have anything to do with me. Yes. He could have lined up a hundred sons and he was going to treat them all the same way because yeah. this is the way he'd been conditioned to deal with stress. And yeah. this is the way he'd conditioned to think about power as a parent. And this yeah. is what was modeled. What, what other tools did he have? Yeah. I never forgave my dad. Not once did I ever say, I forgive you, dad. I looked yeah. at him like, you, you know, you now have to deal with your own conscience because right. I know you're a sensitive human and you know what you did to us. And you know yeah. what, buddy? He, Godspeed, deal with that. But yeah. I am not going to forgive you. And I'm not going to hold any of that shit against you because I refuse to yeah. take it personally. I yes. spoke at a conference once and I said this. And, you know, who came on the live as a literary conference. I was I was shaking someone's hand. They were saying, that was lovely, lovely. I spoke to a room of, I don't know, four or 500 people. And uh, in eighth or ninth back, there was this little old frail man, white hair, pasty skin. And he finally makes it to the front. It's Frank McCourt, Angela oh, Ashes. Yeah. And he grabs me my hand, both hands in my hand. He says, you know, you articulated something. I've been trying to tell people mm -hmm. when they ask me how I forgave my dad. Yeah. He says, and I always would I didn't I didn't need to forgive my dad. And you know, his dad was a notorious yeah. one of the worst drinkers yes. in history. Children yeah. died because he took money to go drink. Frank's right. family was traumatized by this man. Yeah. And I felt like that was vindicated. That was my validation of my idea. Oh, Frank absolutely. saying, listen, <laughs> and then behind him, the play the um uh, the poet, um, the South African poet Brent Brayton Breitenbuck. Mm. Was there? He had done, he had been in prison for seven years with Nelson Mandela because even though he's a white guy, he had been considered subversive in that country. And when mm. he left and came back, even yeah. though his family had been prime ministers and generals and all these other things, he came yeah. from a very distinguished family. He had been a radical in the seventies, sixties, and seventies. So they put him in prison for seven years under apartheid. Um, and he said the same thing. He says, you know, people ask, how could you forgive the guards who beat you guys and brutalize? And he says, I never forgave them, Joe. I'm like you. I just had compassion for them. So yeah. I felt like, okay, I wanted something with this. I never forgave my dad. And I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm not a big, I'm not big on having to forgive people at all. I just want to try and get to a place where I can have compassion for them, understand what, what, yep. what made them do what they did. And then kind of just let it go and not take it personally. Yep. Absolutely. I love that. I feel the same way. I mean, I never told my dad, I forgive you. At one point he was, when he was in the last few months of his life, he was starting to try to do this atonement thing, you know, and yeah, it like yeah, yeah. go through and I just put my hand up and I said, you know what? I can't hear that. And he was like, what do you mean? And I'm like, I'm not going to be, I can't be the container for you, like divesting all this shit from your soul and meeting your own conscience before you die. First of all, because it re-traumatizes me. Like, I'm, I yeah, can't, yeah, yeah. I, so don't make yourself feel better by <laughs> dumping all this. Like, I can't be the container for that. But also, like, I haven't been playing the last eight years. We've had this real, honest, beautiful, mutually loving, okay. respectful relationship. This is not necessary. Like you don't, good, you good. don't have to do that. It's not, there's no price for, you know, for this. Like it, we're both getting something out of it. And it's also, I love what you said about the ego too, because that is precisely the reason that I refuse to say that I'm proud of my children. 
because it doesn't have anything to do with me. It's it doesn't <laughs> like I you know they grew in my body, but they came out who they are, and they are fucking fabulous human beings, completely on their own. I mean, I kept them alive, right? And I provided a home for them, and you know, and I'm not. That's not to say I didn't you know, choose to mother them in a certain way, but whatever specific talents they have or what whoever they've become as a human being, it has nothing to do with me. It is them experiencing life and making choices and working through things on their own. And it's not like, I, I don't get to own their stuff by saying, I'm look, you know, I'm going to post all over Instagram about my kids and say, I'm so proud of you. It's like that again smacks of that sort of ego reflection on me thing like the forgiveness it's like eh, i'm not in you know i can say i'm excited for you i can say i think you're a total badass i think that's awesome i love that we have a cool relationship as you know mother and children but you are who you are it doesn't have anything to you do are with who me you are. exactly i get it i get it now i get it i and that's yeah. how i feel about my daughter frankly like she survived a lot of my nonsense and my my frailties and um things in which i didn't understand uh, yeah i do i do better now and you know it's just part of being a parent there's no there's no formula to be a perfect parent and we're not supposed to be perfect but mm-hmm. i do feel like it's helped me to early on think of matilda as their own person and they're going to make their own mistakes and um, yep. i have to for the rest of their life even when i'm gone in in their imagination, they have to have be go to bed at night saying, "My dad was my ally, and 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 if I had done something wrong, he'd be my alibi." Like she needs to know <laughs> that, and I believe that. I believe that she knows that yeah. I am. I have one allegiance, and that's to her. You know, like yeah, it's it's not it's not it's not a hard call. And so I've done it. I feel like I've done enough of that. But the rest of it, that they're I just need to back their play. Yeah, and and, and I and I do, and yep, and yeah. Anyway, so there's that. But yeah. I do love what you're saying about your dad, how when he came at you, you're like, I don't need to hear this. People would yeah. tell me, hey, are, are you going to try and get a hold of all these people you robbed and tell these women how bad you feel and stuff like that? I said, how, why would I do that? I said, I already stepped to them with all my messiness at that counter and yeah. it barged into their existence and just blah, all over them. And now yeah. you want me to go knock on their, hey, I'm back. I need you right. to now hear all my in front of right. you again. Like, how would I do what you, because yeah. in their head, they thought I'd be doing something good. And I looked at it like, no, that, that, that the presumption that it's more important that I get right. Right. As opposed to their life. Now, if somebody came to me and said, listen, you robbed me. Um, I need to talk to you. All I would do is say, good, I'm just going to be quiet. Tell me everything you need to dump on me. Just don't stab me. But everything yeah. else is pretty much like, if you need to slap me, even I'll take that. But like, it's about them. It's not about yeah. me. If yeah. they needed to communicate something to me, go ahead. And I want to justify, I want to talk, I want to say nothing. Yeah. Because it's not about me. Yeah. And I exactly. think that going to them makes it about me when I'm trying to make it about them. It's never yeah. about them if you address it. So your dad, you're right. Yeah. Put your dad say, ah, stop that energy. I don't need it. That's on you. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also there, you know, it's like there, I think there, it's like, I have a couple of friends that are in AA, right. And they wanted, they hit that atonement step and whatever. And it's like, I, I'm a little cynical about that too. Cause I'm like, that's about you. Like if that person didn't ask you for atonement, then stay the fuck away. Don't that. Stay, don't barge <laughs> in their like, life and interrupt it again with your mess. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, Just like go make yourself feel better some other kind of way. (laughs) I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I feel like I could talk to you all day, but um, we're going to end here and I'm just going to say thank you so much. I am eternally grateful. I am definitely going to post links so people can find your book because everybody needs to read it. <laughs> and yeah, you um, know, I'm, 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 it's been wonderful here to, to, re- to remember certain things I've been thinking about. I'm going to write an essay on the violence in the world right now because it just, it, you know, it reverberates in me from my own understanding. And I'm going to put my yeah. thoughts in the world on this. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I think it, I think people would love to hear it. So thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. All right, Carrie. All right. Have a great day. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Joe. Bye. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of It's Relatable. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and you can find links to all the things we talked about on this episode in the show notes on the webpage for the podcast at mindbodyspirit.fm. Please reach out to me with questions, comments, and ideas for the show and download episodes and leave reviews on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. If you like, subscribe, and follow, you'll be sure to get updated whenever there's a new show to listen to. The music at the beginning and the end of the show is a clip from a song called Get By. It was written by Lauren O'Driscoll, Alexander Parker Lawrence, and Moses Ray Walker. The song is performed by Lorelai and Sam Rydell, and you can find the whole amazing song wherever you stream music. I highly recommend it if you need a mood lifter. I also want to give a shout out to Moses Walker for helping me produce this podcast. He is always and forever making these technical themes seem so much more doable for me. And I am grateful for his expertise and advice. Until next time, take care, mind your relationships, and be well, everyone. What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation podcast, We'll explore the science of manifestation, and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.